I found good news this morning. I have discovered good news just a moment ago. We are like eight minutes ahead of time, so I've got even more time. Isn't that amazing? That is unlike the response of Rich Fires. Rich, stand up right now, brother. Stand up. Who, who last week cheered when he found out the seven and a half minutes of my video were accidentally cut out so, of my sermon. So He's hoping the second street sermons will be shorter, and that is not happening. So... You know, I want to do something. It's going to be very, very difficult um, in a room this big with a group this size. But if we can try to do this, let's just try to imagine that I am just sitting in your front room. We're a family. It is awesome to have our whole family together for one service. But just pretend that I am sitting in your front room this morning, and I just want to share from my heart some of the truths of Scripture on a passage that I don't think I've ever preached on before. It's one that we saying the children were talking about it this morning. It is, and Cheryl read it to us. It's in Matthew chapter 27. I just want to talk to you about the power of Christ's resurrection. You know, there was a man named Robert Ingersoll. Some of you are probably familiar with him. He's, he's a well-known oratory uh, politician in the 1800s. He was pretty famous. He was an agnostic. He was called the great agnostic. Someone who didn't really want to believe that God existed, or at least didn't care if God existed. If God did exist, God had no bearing on his life. And he lectured powerfully against Christianity all through the mid to late 1800s. I want you to to hear one of these quotes. Now listen, be riveted by this. This is a, a man that would not put his faith in Jesus Christ. Here's what he said. The notion that faith in Christ is to be rewarded by an eternity of bliss while a dependence upon reason, observation, and experience merits everlasting pain is too absurd for refutation and can be relieved only by that unhappy mixture of insanity and ignorance called faith. How's that for a nice quote? That's what you wanted to do. You wanted to come to church resurrection morning and hear that. In one lecture, Ingersoll tried to show how the miracle of Lazarus, remember Lazarus, brother of Mary and Martha, he died. It took Jesus several days to get there. The miracle, he raised him back to life. He said, the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead by Jesus was a trick. Now listen, to bolster his waning fortunes. And to clinch his point, he said to his audience, kind of like I'm doing with you right now, he said to his audience, can anyone tell me now why Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth? Now I want you to hear the rest of the story. You ready? Now look at me. There was an old Christian in that audience, an old elderly Christian man. He was all the way in the back. And he stood up and he said these words. Yes, I can tell you why. Because if Jesus had not said Lazarus, he would have had the whole graveyard of Bethany coming out to meet him. Shut him up. Listen, there is power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to look this morning. Now listen, remember, we're in the front room. 
And we're just a family. And I'm just going to walk you through what riveted my heart in preparing for this sermon throughout this past week. Jesus overcame every single effort that came against him to keep him in that tomb. He was crucified on Friday. By the way, the Romans did not invent crucifixion. You know, the, the root word excruciating comes from cruci, crucifixion. They didn't invent it. The Persians did. The Romans perfected it. So he was crucified on Friday almost 2,000 years ago. And listen, this is something you might not have ever thought of, but I want to tell you not one person ever survived crucifixion. Nobody. And he died at 3 p.m. that Friday afternoon. His body was taken down and it was buried in a tomb before sundown because it was believed that the Sabbath began at sundown. The following day began at sundown. This is Friday. The Jewish Sabbath was Saturday. They had to get him in the tomb before sundown. I want to share with you what happened the day after Friday. We almost never talk about it. I want to talk about Saturday because a lot was happening on Saturday. And in verse 62 of Matthew 27, we're going to start to read about it. Here's what it says. Next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. This is Saturday. This is the day after the crucifixion. Listen, we're not used to the phrase, the day uh, of preparation. That's the day that the Jews prepared for the Sabbath. And this was the high day, according to John. John says it's not only the Sabbath, it's the high day Sabbath, meaning that it was the first day of a holy festival. This is the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, you might be a little confused. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was an eight-day festival, and it began on the first day with a celebration of Passover. And so this is the high day Sabbath. And on this Saturday, this Sabbath, we've got the chief priests. They're the Jewish rulers. They're all from around Jerusalem. And we've got the Pharisees and their bitter rivals of Jesus. They're enemies of Jesus. They're trying to, or in fact, they did plot together to kill Jesus. And they come together. Listen, they don't like each other. The chief priests and the Pharisees despise each other. They're both leveraging for the power over the Jews. So they're, they're enemies, but they come together on this Saturday. Now listen, Jesus died at 3 o'clock Friday. He's put into the tomb before sundown Friday. Now it's likely early Saturday when these enemies come together and they go to Pilate, the Roman governor. See, Pilate, you might not know much about Pilate. Pilate, Pilate lives in fear of the Jews by this point. Because he's been reported to Caesar. He's been reported to the Roman Empire twice. And he's been put on notice by the emperor that Pilate, if you mess up again down in that little backwater, back county of Jerusalem, if you mess up again and you cause an uprising, then I'm going to bring my discipline to you. So Pilate is frightened that they're going to send a letter to the Roman emperor. So here comes these Jews, these chief priests, these Pharisees. And they come to him. And they ask for, the, for a tomb, for a, for a guard to be placed over the, for the tomb. 
You know, Greek historians, by the way, you want to know what happened to Pilate? Pilate disappears A.D. 36. This is likely A.D. 30 or A.D. 33. Pilate is off the map of history by A.D. 36. You know what happened? Was the Samaritans. You've got, here's the land of the Israels. You've got, you've got Galilee up north. You've got Samaria in the middle, half Jews. And you've got Judea where Jerusalem is in the bottom. The Samaritans rose up against Pilate. And he put it down in a bloody uh, insurrection, rather. He put him down in a harsh military way. And they complained to the governor of Syria. And Syria complained to the Roman emperor. And the Roman emperor banished Pilate, A.D. 36, to Gaul. That's in the southern part of France. The, the tradition is this. Now listen to this. The tradition is that Pilate threw himself into the lake of Lucerne and drowned himself. That's the rest of the story of Pilate. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they go to Pilate and here's what they say. You can see it behind me. Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Now how ironic that these bitter enemies remember that Jesus promised to rise from the dead. Well, what's happening to the disciples on this Saturday? Well, we learn from Mark 16, Mary went and told those, this is Sunday morning, who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they wouldn't believe it. So we've got chief priests and we've got Pharisees that remember what Jesus said. And you've got all of his disciples that said, our hope is gone. They're sitting around weeping and mourning. And they call Jesus an imposter, which is a Greek word. It means a wanderer. What they're saying is that he deceived people. He caused them to stray and wander from the truth. But I want you to see something that almost almost nobody ever mentions. And you see it in there. Look what he says. Look what they say. While he was still alive. You know what that means? He's dead. They knew he was dead. You've got all these theories today that said Jesus just fainted. It's the swoon theory that he was put in that tomb, but he was still alive. His heart rate was almost down to nothing, but he managed to survive the ordeal. Listen, nobody survived crucifixion. The Romans were experts. They, they thrust that spear. It had a long tapered point about this long. They thrust it through his side, right into his lungs, pulled the spear out. And what poured out of the side of Jesus was a mixture of blood and water, meaning that his lungs had burst. His heart had burst and filled his lungs with water. You want to know how Jesus died on the cross? He literally drowned in his lungs. They would do that to make sure that the body was dead. There's no dispute. Nobody's disputing that Jesus died. Not then. But the fear was this, that his disciples would break into that tomb and steal his bodies and steal his body. And so they asked Pilate on that Saturday morning these words, verse 64, Order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. What they're saying is make sure that imposter stays in the grave or this fraud is going to be worse than the one, listen, just a few days ago when he rode that donkey and several hundred thousand 
thousand Jews coming out of Jerusalem, following him into Jerusalem, claiming him to be the king, the savior, and the Messiah. They said, if he comes out of that grave, if those disciples steal his body, you're going to see an uprising greater than what you saw six days ago. Make the tomb secure, Pilate, or there's going to be an uprising. You want to know how fearful Pilate was that they would send a letter to Caesar? He says to them, verse 65, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they secured the tomb from people breaking in, but they just did not realize that Jesus was going to walk out. They didn't understand that the power of God to free people from the penalty of sin hinges. Listen, it hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? The, the power of God to free you and to free me from the penalty of sin hinges on the resurrection. If Jesus had died on that wretched, bloody cross and never been brought back to life, here's what it would have been like. You ready? You're all going to get this. It would have been like taking your checkbook and writing a million dollar check to our church, which I am heartily in favor of. All right, that was not really that funny. But it'd be like taking a checkbook and writing a million dollar check, but it's going to bounce. It's never going to clear the bank because there's not sufficient funds in it. If the resurrection never occurred, the check of Christ's forgiveness never would have cleared the bank of God's holy Forgiveness, holy grace. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Let me explain why. Now that is so cute. If he starts playing those drums, I'm stopping and we're going to listen. But I cannot compete with children, so get your eyes back over here. I never can. Let me explain it this way. You ready? Four men are climbing the most difficult face of the Matterhorn in Switzerland. Ready? You're there. You feel the icy wind. You're climbing. You're one of them. You're climbing the Matterhorn, and you're on the most difficult face of the mountain, and they're all roped together with the guide who is in the lead. And then all of a sudden, the lowest climber of the four loses his footing, begins to slide down the slope to certain death. They're all roped together. Now listen, you got to get this illustration. He, his body, when he's sliding, yanks on the third climber, the one above him, and yanks him off his feet to slide with him. Now their combined weight yanks the third one off his feet. Now three of them are sliding down the slope to certain death. But the lead guide, being experienced, takes his ice axe and drives it into the bank, drives it into the ice, plants his feet, and holds their weight. Until the first one begins to regain his footing. And then the next one regains their footing. And the final one regains their footing. And up and up they go to safety. See, now let me explain that. You see, as the human race ascended the icy cliffs of life, you've got the first Adam 
who loses his footing and he tumbles down the slope to death. We all will when we sin. Romans 6.23, for the paycheck, the wages of sin is death. You sin, you've earned a paycheck and it's going to be death. That's what the Bible says. And when Adam fell, he pulled, he pulled the next person over the cliff with him and the next person and so on and so on until all of the human race, every single person in this auditorium fell with Adam down that slope to death. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Listen, that's you. Now, are you, are you humble enough with me to be able to admit that you're a sinner? Not everybody can. Have you not felt the prick of your conscience? Have you not done something that you knew was wrong? That is sin. That is following Adam down that slope. But the one who the Bible calls... The last Adam, the second Adam, his name is Jesus Christ. He kept his footing, he stood fast, he perfectly obeyed the entire law of God. He died on that cross as the perfect, unblemished sacrifice. You know what would happen in Passover? Remember, this is Saturday. The day before was Passover. Just a few days before that, the 10th of Nisan was the day that all the Jewish men had to go to their flocks of sheep. And they would pull out of their flocks a sheep that had no, a lamb that had no blemishes, no defects. Because you could not sacrifice a lamb in the temple of God that had a defect. That was against the law. And they would take that lamb on the 10th of Nisan. By the way, do you remember when Jesus went on Monday and cleared out the temple? That was the day that all the men were bringing their lambs to be inspected and to be cleared by the priests as a worthy sacrifice. And if a priest, you brought your lamb in, and if a priest looked at it and examined it and found that there were no defects and that there were no blemishes, listen, he would take his hand... And he would lay it on the head of that lamb. And he would say one word in Greek, tetelestai. In English means it is finished. It's what artists would write on the bottom of their masterpiece when the last stroke was done. It's what sculptures would engrave at the bottom of their statue. It's what banks would write when the the loan's final payment was given. Tetelestai. It is finished. It's what they put on over the, the head of that lamb when they found one without defect. And so we've got Jesus who stands, he keeps his footing, he obeys the the law of God perfectly. God himself pronounced, it is finished. This is my son, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, up on that cross. He is without defect. His life is meritorious or his life is perfect and acceptable to me. And it will forgive your sins when you put your faith in him. That's what it means. See, he paid for our sins with his death. Now listen, this is a, I'm not going to really be speaking too much longer. That's kind of sad. But I want you to hear this. He paid 
for our sins with his death. Listen, you got to get this, Christians. This is why we ought to be pretty robust in our celebration on Easter. Because unless Jesus came out of that grave, that payment would never have cleared the bank of God's holy expectation. His death would have been ineffective. The resurrection of Christ, friends, is the receipt that testifies that Jesus paid our wages by taking our death. And in exchange, he can give us the free gift of eternal life. It cleared the bank. For the wages of sin is death. But look at the rest of it. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so to the enemies of Christ, the payment of his death on that cross. Listen, they've got to keep him in the grave. They can't let that check clear the bank. They've got to find a way to keep the body of Jesus in that tomb. So they went, verse 66. Look what it says. They went, verse 66. And made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. You remember Joseph of Arimathea? Joseph of Arimathea. He was a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Jew. He went on that Friday afternoon after Jesus died, took his body down off that grave or off that that cross and laid his body in a brand new tomb that nobody had ever been put in. It was a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. Now, I want you to think of this. It had been cut out of solid rock. And the Gospel of John, listen, you've got you to get these details. The Gospel of John shows that when Peter ran to the tomb on that Sunday morning, he had to stoop down to look in. Because it's a low tomb. That was common. So it's cut out of solid rock. It's a low tomb. You've got to bend down to get into it. And in front of it, now a lot of people don't know this. I just learned it this last week. In front of it was this track that was cut into the rock at the base of that tomb. And there was a wheel-shaped slab of stone that was around a foot and a half thick, and it would be rolled down the slope, down the trench. And there was a stopper stone, and that, that wheel-shaped slab would be rolled down the trench, down a slope, and bang against that stopper stone and seal the tomb. That's how they sealed them. And Matthew wrote that it was a great stone. Mark said it was a very large stone. In the Greek, well, likely that's one to two tons. Can you imagine that? Here's just this wheel-shaped slab weighing one to two tons rolled down that slope in that trench to bang and stop against the stopper block of stone sealing that tomb. Maybe six to eight feet in diameter. But that wasn't enough. So they made the tomb more secure by sealing it. Here's how they would seal it. They would take a short length of rope and they would fix it on the front of that stone slab with clay. And then that rope would come around the edge of that stone wheel-shaped slab and to the side of the tomb with clay. And then they would imprint upon it the Roman seal. If you break that seal, then all the might, all the justice of Rome will come against you. It was a massive warning. Don't violate this tomb. But that wasn't enough. A one to two ton slab of stone gone downhill into a trench. A Roman seal with all the power and authority of Rome behind it. That wasn't enough. So they made the tomb secure and they set a guard. 
This is a redundancy system. If you're in security business, you know all about redundancy plans. This is a Roman guard, 16 soldiers. They served four at a time on shifts. So you've got the stone slab, you've got the seal, you've got the guards all in place to keep Jesus in the grave, all to no avail. Listen, there is no power that could prevent the Son of God from rising again. And so Matthew tells us at dawn, the following day on Sunday, there's an earthquake and an angel, listen, an angel takes that stone slab and rolls it back up that hill, one to two tons, rolls it back up that slope. According to John, he rolled it away from the tomb, far away. Mark infers he rolled it up above the tomb. He dropped it on its side and he sat there looking at the guards and saying, what are you going to do about it? You know what happened to the Roman guards, hardened soldiers? They were trembling with fear and fell like dead men. That means they fainted in fright. They'd never seen anything like this. Jesus was raised back to life. Now listen, you've got to get the theology. We don't like that word, but you've got to understand it. Meaning that his great deposit for our redemption cleared the bank. The moment he walked out of that tomb, God said, your check, your death on the cross just cleared the bank. Now I could bring life. I could bring life to people. His resurrection guaranteed, and that's a financial term, it guaranteed every believer's resurrection from the dead. Do you remember Robert Ingersoll that I opened with? Now listen to this, this is pretty interesting. In 1899, two famous men died. The year 1899, now you got to listen, I'm almost getting to the end of this. One was a Christian, the other one was the Robert Ingersoll that I, to- that I opened up with. And he railed against Christianity all the way to the end of his life. When he was 65 years old from congestive heart failure, he died suddenly before anybody expected him to die. It was a complete shock to his family. His, in fact, listen, his wife kept his body in the home for days. She could not deal with his death. She would not let them take the body until for health reasons they had to take the body. This was to her, his wife, the absolute final parting, never to see her husband again. And his body was taken out. The funeral, it was reported, was so dismal that it gained national attention. It was in the papers all around the nation for such a dour funeral of this great oratory politician. But there was another man that died that year. Most of us have heard of him. His name is D.L. Moody. He was that great preacher from Chicago. His health had been declining for a while. The morning of his death, and you've got to hear this. The morning of his death, his son, who was sitting by his side, leaned down and he heard D.L. Moody say these words. Earth is receding. Heaven is opening. God is calling. You're dreaming, father, his son said. No, Will, this is no dream. I've been within the gates. I've seen the children's faces. A short time later, he said, Is this death? This is not bad. There is no valley. This is bliss. This is glorious. 
By this point, Will had left his bedside and Moody's daughter had come to sit with him. Her name was Emma and she was sitting with him and she began to pray. When he said those words, she began to pray out loud that God would heal Moody, that he would recover. Moody interrupts his daughter Emma's prayer with these words. No, no, Emma, don't pray for that. God is calling me. This is my coronation day. I have been looking forward to it. It wasn't long after that that Moody was received into heaven. Now listen, that's a powerful story. Your emotions probably are rising like mine are. Not every death of every Christian is that glorious, but every Christian has the guarantee of eternal life and a coronation day. Paul says it. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. His resurrection made the check clear the bank. It brought hope to everybody in Christ. Friends, Jesus Christ is risen. Let's try it again. Jesus Christ is risen. Remember, we're in your front room. And here's where I want to get personal with you. I really want you to hear this. You've heard this sermon... And I have a question for you this morning, and I cannot answer it for you. You have to do that. Are you here this morning without that hope of D.L. Moody? You will know if you are likely because inside you are knotted up right now. And you feel likely like you're the only one in this room and that I am looking right at you. I can't see you. God is looking at you likely. If you, will you please hear this, please? Just listen to the gentleness of my words because I mean this with as much love as I can give you. If you've not yet put your trust in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that check that he made on the cross with his life, you've not cashed it. And you're still in your sins. That's as gentle as I can tell you. And if you were to die in that state, friends, please listen to me. If you were to die in that state, tragically and most certainly, you will rise from the dead. Every human being will. You will either rise to receive eternal life or you will rise to receive eternal death. There's only two options. Doesn't that just make sense? I have four children. If there was another way to save your life than sacrificing one of my kids, wouldn't I find it? Wouldn't I take it? If the only way to save us from our sins was to take the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and send Him to this planet to put skin on and to live perfectly, 
And then to climb on that cross willingly, the most excruciating death ever invented, and to die with the wrath of God, with all of our sins poured into his soul. That's the only time he cried out in fear. That's the only time he cried out in pain. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's when the Father dumped your sins and my sins onto the account of Jesus Christ. If he did not come out of that tomb, it would have been for nothing. But because he came out of that tomb, it means everything. When you go to the bottom of that crucified Christ, when you go to the bottom of that cross, and you take that gift that is yours called salvation, and by faith you open it up. That's all you've got to do. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You're not going to be good enough ever for it. Never. Neither could I be. It's a free gift called grace. It's there for you. You open it by faith. Every single enemy of Jesus Christ tried to keep him in that grave. But their power was broken. He rose from the dead. He proved that his death had cleared the bank of God's holy, righteous demands. Friends, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, then you know him and the power of his resurrection. You know what that means? It means that you have eternal life and you've got the power to overcome a bad marriage. You've got the power to overcome hopelessness and depression and discouragement and addictive sins. That power of the resurrection can break the bonds of anything and it fills your heart with hope. But if you've not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you're here this morning without hope. I have all, I've shared this three times in the, I think three times in the 20 years that I've been a pastor. The worst fear I have is that you could hear me preach to you the gospel and somehow your eyes remain closed and you say no and you stand before Jesus Christ one day and he says, why didn't you, why didn't you trust me? Why didn't you humble your soul and believe in me? Because I'm the only way to eternal life. And you will not know what to say. And he will say, get away from me. I will not see you again. That's as nice as I can be while being truthful. Would you close your eyes this morning? Would you just bow your head? I'm just going to ask everybody to do that. There's nothing mysterious that's going to happen. I don't know if there is anyone here. I suspect there is. But I don't know if there's anybody here that has not yet put their trust, their faith in Jesus Christ alone. If you feel that wrestling in your heart right now, that's God saying, would you just put your trust in me and become my child? Let me save you. And I'm just going to be so simple. If you're ready to say yes to that gift of salvation, I'm just going to ask you, I'm not going to ask you to do anything but this. Just stand up. Just stand up and testify today. You're not going to need to say anything. I'm just going to ask you to be courageous and stand up. It's very simple. But I don't want anybody to leave here without having that opportunity. Would you stand right now and be courageous? I'm not going to ask you to come to the front. 
I'm just going to pray for you. If you're feeling that wrestling, that's the tug of God. Now, I'm going to ask everybody in here to stand up. If you would stand up right now, let's just close your eyes. Let me just ask you a couple questions. Your eyes are still closed because I'm going to pray for you in a minute. To know Christ and the power of the resurrection, well, let me ask you a question. You ready? Do you have a, a marriage that's in trouble? Is your marriage in trouble? Are you caught in a sin right now that you cannot overcome? Are you discouraged to the point where you are about to give up on God? I just talked to somebody just two days ago. So close to giving up on God. Tragic things have happened in her life. And that might be you. We have a lot of hurting people in this church. And it seems like blow after blow is coming like the waves of the ocean against you right now. Are you ready to give up on God? Are you in a marriage that is struggling? Are you losing hope? Are you discouraged? I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand and I'm just going to pray for you. Would you raise your hand if that's you? I see that hand. I see that one. I see that hand. I see that one. A lot of hands going up. Would you be courageous? Raise that hand. You're testifying to Jesus. You need help. And you need the power of the resurrection to come into your life again. So let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for those who've just raised their hands. Lord, my brothers and my sisters, I would pray for them. And I would ask, Lord, that you would do a work. Let them know the power of your resurrection. It's not just the power of eternal life. It is power to live life now victoriously. And Lord, I pray for those whose hands went up because of their marriages. And for those whose hands went up because of sin that they cannot seem to break the chains of. For those who are discouraged. Or those in any other situation that I might not have listed. Lord, I pray for them. I pray that you would right now flood their hearts with the reality that Jesus Christ came out of that tomb. He came out of that tomb because no power could keep him in there. And you have power, God. You have power, Jesus Christ. And that power can heal marriages and that power can bring hope and that power can set our feet on rocky, high places. That power can break the chains that have bound us. And Lord, I pray that that power will be liberally given this morning. Lord, give my brothers and my sisters freedom and your help. And Lord, for those who are here who may not know you, and may not put their, their faith into you, your, your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that they will not let the sun go down today until they turn to you and say, Jesus, save me. Save me from my sins. Give them eternal life. We love you and we thank you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's worship.